Welcome to episode 173, like Wurzel Gummidge and Aunt Sally, the Don and Shawnee B emerge from the longest lockdown of any country in the world. And we're only just emerging. We're only just like little badgerets coming out of the set late at night with Bob Fleming guiding us out into the darkness. Hello, the Don. Hello. Are you scared? I'm scared, yeah. Because I have to like socialise again. The vaccines appear to be working everywhere. We're slow as usual with our outtake. I think we have about, what have we got, 20% of our people, one jabbed or something. Something like that. I couldn't swear to it now. Anyway, hello, wherever you are in the world, listen to this. It's one of the most amazing and weird things about this coronavirus that every single one of you, no matter where, what strange place in the world you're listening to a pint with Shawnee B has affected you. We're going to, I predict, see now this typical situation where the rich countries get vaccinated and the poor are left to rot and we all wring our hands and go, oh, what if, what if, but we don't free up patents, uh, we don't hand over percentage of our own vaccines, we do nothing. India, I'm not so, I mean, it's shocking what's happening in India, but they, again, so many countries, including our own before Christmas, get cocky with the fact that they've beaten this thing and they go, oh, we've beaten it. It's not a problem here. It is a problem. It is a problem wherever you are. I, I've got a lot of friends in Australia. In fact, did you know I was Australian? I am Australian. Mike. Really? Do you, like a citizen? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, Australia has been unscathed by this, but I keep saying to them, be careful. It can, yeah. it can come in and it will Take catch fire, and before you can say knife, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, the problem with being unscathed by it is like the vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, they don't want to take the vaccine. What's the problem, mate? Yeah. So it has been an anus, an anus horrible, a horrible anus, as <laughs> the Queen used to say when. I think, it was I, the year that, I think it was the year that Princess Diana died. Yeah, it she, was, yeah. She was fucking clicking her heels at that. I was only thinking, actually, a few weeks ago, I was only thinking. She's already used that term now, but I'd yeah. say you thought that was bad, Queenie. Well, I've co-opted this year. Your husband died. Yeah. That pair went on the telly. Yeah, <laughs> it, like it's it's not great for you. Anus horribleus in my life as well. Those of you listening to the last show know my father quickly, suddenly, kind of suddenly passed away, which was uh, pretty awful for everyone involved. Sean did re-release the interview he did with his dad, as he tends to do, and, and somebody, Gerald, and Gerald as he tends to do when somebody passes away, which is becoming a habit on yeah. your show. I'd worry about that, having been a guest 144 myself. 144 guests and three now have died. The stats aren't great. Um, Covid-esque. Yeah, but so obviously Sean had a little chat at the start of that, and I don't know if everybody heard that, but it's worth having a listen to. But So we haven't been on. No. Just didn't seem right, and you had some stuff going on anyway. So We're yeah. back. We're back on our bullshit now. <laughs> How have you been doing? I know, I know it's, it's ridiculous when I ask you this because anybody listening yeah, is probably, probably fully know. aware. But I don't know how have I been doing? <laughs> uh, how have you been doing? When I say how have you been doing, Sean, I mean like how are you really doing? Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I'm feel, I feel okay about it. I'm like I mean you can't be okay about any member of your family dying, but we all have to, and at some point we all will. And I think my dad died with an eight in front of his age number, which. You know, it could have been a nine, but if you get to eight, uh, you can't have too many complaints that you didn't have enough days or time to do what you wanted to do here. And he also, as I said before, I think was looking down the barrel of a very, very difficult six months of chemotherapy, which was not going to work. His cancer was at stage four and he went out quickly. And it, Yeah, that's merciful. And, you know, it doesn't help my mother at home. You know, after 60 years with the same man, she's living in the big house now on her own. And my sisters are all helping and I'm doing what I can. So, you know, it's the first time we've had grief in our family since 96. Uh, So that's also a long stretch. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as well. Well, Because we tend to navel gaze a bit and we talk about big life things but like one of the biggest things that's coming to us all is like the loss of a parent but now it's happened so what's that been like has there been has there been anything about it that's surprised you or well you certainly feel uh yes you get quite introspective about your own life and you you know start thinking about your next you know you're Mm. the next cab off the rank your generation is the next one to die one of the next ones to die 
once I mean I'm 53 I'm a smoker I drink a lot you know I've burned this body pretty bad over the years so I mean how, how much more I'll get I don't know um, I'm, I'm okay with that I mean I, I, I used to joke with my dad that you know he, he never drank or smoked and I used to say to him like this, these are the years you're getting back because you didn't smoke or drink but you know I'm not sure I'm that I mean, I'm sure when I get to 80, I'll desperately want them, but I'm not sure I really want them. Yeah. Um, and so, and there's also a slightly nihilistic point of what is life all about? Why are we here? What Me and my father lived a big life. It was amazing the outpouring of um, love for him, on, especially mm. on the internet. And, and people, people and contacting you. me, yeah. uh, which was... You know, if, if ever you're wondering whether you should write to someone who someone has died, I mean, there are people who haven't literally haven't contacted me in five, ten years who bothered to send mm. something and just a little short note on Facebook, which is really nice. And what did what did it mean to you when people did that? I, I suppose it's it's the modern equivalent of walking up the church to shake hands with the grieving. You know, it's like yeah, but why does that matter? I think that's I wanted to ask you about this because I, people can be very uncomfortable around death. My own thing, I, th- I think Irish people probably less so. We're, we have a weird kind of death situation. But in general, I think sometimes people don't know what to say. And so they avoid you. And mm. I think that's the worst thing. So that's why I wanted to ask I find you. it's worse when you people owe you money is when they avoid you. Yeah. If you want to get, if you want to shake off a friend, just loan them money to be gone. Um, no. So I just, I wanted to ask you about that because I thought there might be people listening who it, it would kind of not be the best and not really know what to say and I, I thought it'd be interesting for you to be able to talk about why it matters I think when it happens and it, it happened quite quickly I was in we were in a holding pattern my sister George was running point on the whole thing for months and she, she did an amazing job um, you know working with the doctors and having dad in and out of hospital and we never really thought he was going to go this time but then we went in to see him on a Saturday and he died that night and I, when I saw him I was like Okay, this isn't this is this yeah. is taking a turn for the worst. And so the rest of the next week is a blur because he dies, and you know then my mother and my sister have to work out the funeral plans, and we have to go in through the you know to the burial process and the mass and the readings and the you know trying not to get people to turn up outside the church, which was an Irish thing. And all through that, there you know gets out on the internet, or you. You put something up on the internet and people respond to it. And it's just, you know, you like everyone, we go to bed, we scroll through our internet, we go through our social media, and there's just this well of, you know, condolence that's yeah. there, which is just reassuring. And people, friends you used to have that were good friends that you used to hang out with a lot, contact you and say, you know, I remember this, I remember that, or even just yeah. say something very short and sweet and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of you at this time from all over the world. And it just, it's like a kind of a, like it's, a, like, a, it's, like, it's like something that just props you up, keeps you, makes it easier for you to carry on. It also, it also is a nice thing to imagine my father being able to see, you know, that there's this, because a lot of the, I realised a lot of my friends had seen that or met him. Yeah. Or, you know, he'd done one of his, puppet shows or ventriloquism or magic shows for so yeah it was this big uh it was this big uh well from the outside when i was watching the even just on facebook like mm. all of the condolences but i think what surprised me is that like every every day on facebook somebody has somebody has died and everyone's mm. kind of throwing the little part of the sad face and saying oh i'm sorry for your loss and I've, like, I've even seen it myself where you, you might not know the person that well and you're kind of going, oh, 16 people have said it. And you kind of go, oh, they've already said sorry for your loss. How do I say it a different yeah. way? <laughs> but without but, but without being over familiar because I don't really know her, but yeah. I don't want to pass it. So like even me, I get kind of it. You think it doesn't matter and it's kind of meaningless and you're just being polite, but it doesn't matter. And you'd be the last person I expect to be really taken by it. Mm. But you were. It mattered to you. And I think it's just a thing of, he was your dad and he lived and people taking the time to offer your condolence to you is nice and it's human but there's also a kind of people bearing witness to the fact that your dad has died and Mm. I think that's really important and I think particularly because it was a COVID funeral as in Mm. there was only allowed to be 10 mourners and so we kind of missed some of our normal Irish traditions Uh, I think it's really important in that time where everything's a blur and you're it mattered that people belonging to you one cared enough to say I'm sorry mm. 
important. And I was taken aback by how much it made a difference to you. We have, uh, we live in a world where most people end up losing a parent. Oh, hopefully. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's some cases where kids die before their parents. But generally speaking, everyone can identify with this and yeah. knows the pain. And, you know, it's what it was. It was an outpouring of empathy. People are still empathetic. And yeah. even though we have, I mean, I talked in the previous podcast about we, we live in a sort of a cul-de-sac estate of detached houses in Cabantini. And after the mass, the hearse drove down the road and all of these people who, you know, I hadn't, many of whom I hadn't seen in years were standing at the front of their house. And came yeah. Out. And some of them very old people. It was yeah. just very moving because that road back in the 70s, everyone was in and out of each other's houses at dinner parties and there was great friendships. During the 90s and 2000s, you, you were lucky if you knew your two, your na- neighbours on either side and the same people across the yeah. road who you once partied with, you don't anymore, but you still salute them. But there yeah. was no community. And in fact, you know, big shout out to the neighbours since my father passed away who have been, you know, um, calling in and I think there might looking be a- after my mother and bringing newspapers to her and stuff like that, which is, again, something that is above and beyond uh, what's required and, and, and yet means so much. And as I said, there was I didn't finish the point. Really. There's a bit of a sort of nihilist sort of what's life all about. I go on about the 30 summers left. You know, I've probably only got 25. Cliches like, living every day like it's your last which is very hard to do in times of COVID yeah. you're living the same day over and over again and I, I think there's a certain amount of um, you know we can probably drift into the COVID thing now because there's so much contemplation that goes on yeah. and we've all been living inside our own heads and inside our own houses for so long that it has hopefully changed us I mean you've had a view on that as well yeah you? actually you know, just as you were saying that a minute ago something occurred to me um because I was, I wanted to ask you about the nihilism thing. Do you find that some days that brings you kind of down? And I'm sure, what's the point? Because it kind of, I can see why it's a big thing when one of your parents dies, even if you're okay and you're doing all right with it. It's still part of your world. It's one of your pillars, even if you're quite independent. Mm-hmm. Your entire worldview has to ne- necessarily shift. Suddenly, nothing is such a big deal. It's kind of a huge thing to happen in life. But then I, it occurred to me that I've been thinking that about COVID as well. There's only so much you can give a shit after COVID. Like once the whole world has stopped, once the world has been turned off. Like yesterday, it was, it was Sunday and I was looking out the window and I was saying to you, I wonder if, I don't think as many people are sitting there getting sick in their stomach going, oh shit, I have to go into the office tomorrow, I have school. Like just getting really het up and upset. You know, there's only so much you can care when the entire world has been switched on and off. I, I wonder if it takes some of that really toxic anxiety might be taken down a little bit afterwards and I hope that stays. It occurred to me the correlation that having something as large as having a parent die. It's not, and I know it's not a surprise. We know it's coming to us, mm. but it, it is still a change of worldview. And I wonder if that takes a, it, the same kind of nihilism can be an optimistic nihilism. It can be a chilling out about stuff. It can be things losing power. But I get that that can be a different thing on a different day. And so I wanted to ask you about that. We have, um, the way I looked at it was, we're all focused on the wrong things. Yeah. Now, we all are focused on making money. Yeah. And I understand that because if you have money, life is a lot easier. I'm not saying it gets you happiness, but it is a lot easier. Yeah. And it's very stressful not having money. And it's very stressful having no money. In fact, it's borderline. I know. End of the world. <laughs> but we are paying the wrong people, the big bucks. We are mm. paying people like me in advertising quadruple or 10 times what we pay a nurse in a hospital or a a guy who collects the bins or someone who is brave enough to sit behind a store during COVID wearing a mask interfacing with everybody and so you know it's my old favorite which we've played in the podcast before the Bill Hicks just a ride you know this is just a ride and people are so worried and so head up about the fact that it has to be real that it's probably not real and that we're going through this thing where we need to stop back, step back and we need to start enjoying it and we need to stop working 16 hour days because nobody yeah. will ever remember you as the person who who worked 16 hours mm. they will never they will and, and and the sheer degradation of loyalty and employment yeah. primarily through lack of the smashing of unions 20 30 years ago so there's this horribly mean-spirited employer-employee situation right now, which is disgusting and possibly needs to be righted. 
I'm but, not sure whether it will or not. Yeah, but it occurs to me, and like I, I, I think in these terms because I've got kids, my eldest is nearly 11, so I'm kind of constantly thinking of moving into the teenage years and stuff. And how can we sit there and be surprised that we have this culture that you're talking about when we do it to our own kids? Mm-hmm. We like the, like the leaving search, it's the final exam, but it's basically your entire life hangs over it. If you don't get the points in your leaving search, you won't get the college course yeah. you want. And realistically, there is absolutely nothing in college that you couldn't, if you don't get the points for that you couldn't find a back door away for eight, doing a year, 18 months in some little college and find a back door in. There's, there's, and you're literally, you're 18. It's it, There's plenty of time. The stress that we put kids under at a stage where we know that a kid going to secondary school is 12, 13, their bodies are changing, everything's hard, it's so yeah. difficult, but we're standing over them going, you have to do grinds, you have to do this, you have to study, do you not know if you don't get, if you, if you don't stay in honours then you can't, won't be able to get back up from pass and all of this at a time when children are so fragile, they're so emotionally fragile, but we do it because we're afraid it's not going to work out, so then we're surprised that adults behave differently, we're, tra- we're literally training adults and have been for donkey's years we're training adults to go yeah you Absolutely. do you do need to worry you do. and there, like it's I very pressure on. yeah it's yeah. so much pressure and there's like like we intellectually know that we need to calm down and you know put things in perspective and all that but it's like we can't seem to calm the fuck down because we get swept away in a culture until something happens like covid or you lose a parent and then you suddenly go listen i knew this but now i know this there's a great book by michael sandell called the tyranny of merit which is just out last year it's it's exposing the meritocracy for all the flaws that come with it and the flaws are not every like when i was growing up there was a thing called tech school where people went to learn to be builders and plumbers and carpenters right those people should come out into jobs that pay just as just as more if not more because they're building something tangible for the community than an ad man who's making some fucking bullshit that is, 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 if anything, just greed-based and greed-fomenting. Yeah. But I mean, leaving advertising out, that you have this this meritocracy is all sideways-based. It's all growing inequality. It's pushing kids too early. It's pushing them, you know, to one exam, as you put it, which is meaningless, actually, when you think back about it. Uh, yeah, but there's like there's people my age, like like I didn't, I never sat there even certain for for good reason. I had a nervous breakdown. And I was invited to leave school, but like the pressure was so much for me and it, it, it got my mental health into such a state that for all the pressure and the pushing and the doing, you can do this and you're a 600 pointer and you're gifted and we expect this and I don't mind what marks you get, but I expect you to study. All of that resulted in me. I've never worked a day in my life. It ruined yeah. me. Yeah. It, like, yeah. it, and it, it genuinely ruined me. And I was the special gifted child that just if you give her a bit of a push, nothing too major. Nobody asked me to stay up all night studying. Mm. But the stuff that we consider to be good parenting now is what I got. And <laughs> look, look how I ended but up. Even the, and then even when it comes to actual work, as I said earlier, there's just this, I mean, I look back on my career and I go like, it was just, there's nothing joyful about it. There was no, like, there were some great people I met that I'm still friends with and there was interesting projects I worked on. But like, you know, even the the culture was was one of braggards and, and politics and, you know, people trying to knife people in the back and rejection and lack of understanding where you're supposed to be. So it was... Like you look back at it, if you, if you say you're going to spend forty years working, like we need to change those forty years to make them as yeah. happy, not but as well paid. It feels like we have a culture where we're always supposed to better ourselves, but better ourselves means that you have to have to better yourself is to have a higher standard of education or further qualifications to get a higher paying job to get a white collar job, and those yeah. things are all fine and they're fine things to want and to want to give your children opportunities, but. The idea of bettering ourselves rarely involves becoming kinder or or being happier or finding a profession where you can just about make a living or you can get by, but you're actually happy in what you're doing. And the idea that you'll you'll end up working in a shop the rest of your life. Some people are really quite happy working in a shop because they don't want the pressure. Mm. They they like being able to clock off. They like being able to chat to people. But we have this hierarchy of what's good and what's not and what's worth being proud of and what's not. And that's a problem. Well, the, 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 the hypocrisy of the of the business that I was in and the unpleasantness of it caused me to walk away from it and I have loads of people including my parents including my dad who are kind of disgusted with me that I would throw away 
such a high earning career. Mm. I was reasonably high up the greasy pole and I just slithered I right back down. I think people are just that. so shocked. I mean, I, I see people, it's not, it's not even that people are disgusted by it. Some people don't like it because you're holding a mirror up to them and they feel that your choice to leave advertising is a criticism of them if they're not. I get that, that happens. But I think most people are just baffled. Like, listen, you're making a mint. It's a high paid job. I I, can, I just don't, I can't quite grasp mm. what, what, why, what, what are you doing? And I get, mm. I understand people being baffled, but from your perspective, are you happier? Well, you know, the other side of this is if I had three children, I would yeah. not be leaving it. I yeah. kind of made this plan when I was in my teens. But even if you can, I, I know you've explained this to people. And even if you, they get, get that I've, I've worked long enough that I can leave now. I'm not minted, but I can now. And they're going, yeah, but it's like it, they see it as it's like I can watching people looking at you. They're looking at you as if you're setting fire to money. Because they know that you could be getting all this money for yeah. a grand dandy job and you refuse to do it. And yeah, you might be fine. You might be able to. But why would you give up the opportunity for the mm. next 10, 15 years to be keep coining it in? They just can't grasp it. And I understand that. So, you know, we're corralled into the college and the school thing. Yeah. We're also corralled into there's something wrong with you if you don't get married and have children, which mm. we also need to disrupt. We also need to disrupt the religion thing because the religion thing is causing major yeah. knock on problems everywhere else. And there's also the work thing that actually the goal should be to get out of work as quickly as yeah. possible that you may then develop as a person by doing something that you love or enjoy or you will look back on with a smile or happiness. I mean, I know people who have no children who during the pandemic are working 12 hour days. Now, that might be their way of dealing with isolation, which yeah. is fine. But apart from the social norm, this is what I mean by the nihilism, you end up going... Like, what was the point of that? You know, yeah, yeah, the point of it was to get money. But apart from that, and people go, well, isn't it lovely to go into the office and sit there and talk about what was on television? No, it's not, actually. It's not nice. It's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. And it's paying the hole. And it's fake, you know. Mm. But we're, we're desperately, I think what I think the basic point, and I've rambled a bit here, is we're terrified of looking inward. We're terrified yeah. of being with ourselves. And looking at what we could be doing better, or what our life is about, or what we think life in general is about, yeah. and our place in it. But I've no, I've, I know I've said this before, but if you think to the word occupation, yeah, like literally to keep yourself occupied, mm. that's it. You know, we, we yeah. need babysitters in life, and some people more than others. And I get that some people actually really just love what they do; they actually get a thrill out of it. it you know, I get that, but I also understand that you know you're somebody who d- does not need to be under the office every day. For other people, I think for a lot of people they would be much happier if they weren't working there as much, but still working a bit, mm. which hopefully COVID would bring in. That, that, that Hopefully one of the lasting changes would be that people, you don't have to be in the office every hour, mm. for God's sense, but you can still have a job and be engaged in the world. Like As a society, we don't seem to understand or we seem to constantly reject the concept of enough. Mm. It's always better, more. Yeah, like, that's what's wrong, like, the business, yeah, yeah, but like in terms of achievement, what's wrong with somebody getting to age 35 and they've climbed up to a point where they're going, I make enough money now. I was able, I was able to buy a house and pay the mortgage. I, it's a three bed. I don't really want a promotion yeah. so that I can buy a five bed. I don't, I don't need, need a five bed. <laughs> like we have two kids and there's a bedroom for each of them. Mm. And it's, I don't need a bigger house and I don't need a bigger office. Mm. And I, But like people look at that as, what, what's wrong with you? Why have you no ambition? What's, mm. what, but somebody just going, I'm actually quite happy. I have enough to get by and I can have a life. That mm. was That's enough for me. I, not everybody needs to. We as a society do not accept that. If you really analyse it and stand clear and look from your working from home and all the stuff, the extraneous stuff, you know, you get up in the morning at six or seven, you have a shower, you have some breakfast, you go to the train station or the bus station or you drive into work. It probably takes you an hour. You get in, you make coffee, you make small talk, you're in behind a computer or whatever, if you're in a white collar job or if you're in a bank or a store or whatever, you go and start doing what it is you're paid to do. You have a lunch break, you have a fag break, you come out in the afternoon, it's getting dark, you go home on the bus, it's raining, you get home, you start talking yourself in front of the television with some dinner that you've made or someone that's kindly made for you. You go through a bottle of wine, you watch stuff, you have a fag out the back at night and you go to bed and you switch off all the lights and you get up and do it all again. That's what happens. Yeah, I hear that and I go, yeah. Day two might, might be difficult. Day three must be a struggle. I, I'm like, how do people do that all the time? That goes on. And what, then what happens? What are you doing that for? Well, I'm doing this that I may get money to buy yeah. a house. Or you know what? In May, I'm going to go for two weeks in the sun yeah. for a holiday. So why do you want more and, money for better quality what, of life? Money can offer, you, yeah. can offer you options that gives you a better quality, quality of life. So I'm going to work hard so I make more money so that I can have a better life. Grand to a point. Hmm. Money is a tool. 
what's the point in making in getting more tools to have a better life if you're going to work so hard to keep getting all the tools that you never get a chance to enjoy your life oh i mean i have a friend here in ireland who's working so so hard and he and he's about 60 and i was talking to his partner and she said well you know he's i said why is he working so hard they, they have never had kids and he goes well you know, we need we need money for you know retirement, and I said, "This is your retirement. <laughs> this is these are the years yeah. when you're supposed to be retired." And so there, but you know, I get that there are uh, people who are terrified of not working. I know a few of them yeah. as well in the ad business. It just, you know, the very idea of them not having a regular income is yeah. just will freak them out. A lot of them are Scottish, actually, really. But <laughs> <laughs> understandable, but, you know. But I also get that. So there's, it's not like I'm not, I'm not trying to preach some new gospel. Yeah. But what I am trying to say is that we all just take for granted what people tell us to do, and we are told. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, we're we told get a message. We get a message. This. Yeah. We're, we're, we're brought up to be. Eddie Izzard's thing, I want to be an astronaut. Well, you can't be an astronaut. You live in Bradford, okay? So think about, okay, I want to work in a shoe shop. You can't work in a shoe shop. You live in Bradford. Okay, I want to work in a sewer. Ah, now you're talking. Yeah. Right, so there's a there's a kind of a caste situation laid on kids yeah. from, from where, wherever they're brought up. And it's quite hard for a kid to sort of get out of that and get somewhere, you know, we, because there is no meritocracy when it comes to education or as yeah. much as that we, we, we like to think there is. Well, statistically speaking. So we don't, I, all I'm saying is we just look at it and, and, and I think it is, you know, a simulacrum. I think it's a, it's like the Truman Show. It's like you can break through the sky and something else can, can come of it. And I think we should all be looking, looking that way much more uh, intently and study yeah. it much more than we do. Well, certainly now, because I think a lot of people know this. They know this, you know, the way we can know something intellectually, but we, it still doesn't kind of resonate or it doesn't change yeah. the way we behave. Like me, me knowing that you shouldn't get all anxious on a Sunday night doesn't mean I won't get all anxious on, and not sure. me personally, but everyone knows that it's not worth it. It's grand knowing that it's a different thing actually making that happen. But I think we have an opportunity now when the world has been switched off, when things have changed, when priorities have changed, when actually you can work from home and well, we can't get everything done. Ah, sure, it's not the end of the world. And I think it's really important for people to take that time now and don't hand back. The, I know people are dying, to, a lot of people are dying to go back to the office and I totally get that. But don't hand back everything that, mm. that we got from this because it was fucking hard enough, this pandemic. And one thing we did get was actually, you know what? The the figures at the end of the week are not actually the most important thing in the world. Mm. Bosses that expect too much, real, uh, re, having to realise actually there's only so much you can expect and tough titties is a pandemic on. So I think, I think it would be really sad for people not to go, for us collectively as a society not to talk about and go, hang on, we're not going back to that. Well, Fuck weirdly... That corporations need to change too and mm. you know the, the the worst example i felt was the harvard and ivy leagues in america where oh, you know harvard disgusting. has harvard has something like and i thought this was a I, I when i first read it or used to tell this story i presumed i made a mistake um had a zero in the wrong place but they have 500 million dollars in cash reserves yeah which is ridiculous. I mean, it is like massive. It's like, you know. It's I mean, incomprehensible. And the first thing they did in COVID was they let go all their support staff. They let go of the janitors. They let go of the cleaners. They let go of the gardeners. They let go of the people who take care of the place. All the poorest people yeah. that they have. And there was an opportunity for a college. It's not like you're fucking Jeff Bezos and want to make a billion dollars and stick it up your nose. It's like a college. It's a community mm. that people rely on. The poor people who are not as educated. Yeah. rely on and that you just fire them or furlough them and go good luck sorry we're a business we've got business to do here that is the microcosm yeah. and every com- company needs to work off that and go that is disgusting that's that is capitalism at its most rancid hmm. most rancid it's just, that's we have a problem in the world we do like I mean I know there's there'll be th- those think bleeding hearts there'll be people with different ideas people more conservative fiscally and people kind of saying a bit more Mayfay and saying well earn what you want but no matter where you you land politically I don't think anybody should listen to that and not be like oh Jesus that's fucking awful that's really bad so uh, anyway that was quite the opening <laughs> a lot of shit has gone down Anyway, the good news is I think that we're starting to show signs that we may be able to beat this uh, corona situation, which would be fantastic. Um, I asked you, the listener, to, if you wanted to, to send in emails or uh, tweet me at 
Shawnee B or send a email to Shawnee B at hotmail.com or find me on Facebook um, with anything you'd like us to discuss. Um, the podcast has become sort of the Don and Shawnee B show. I might even need to have a name changed. But, you know, our listenership is going. <laughs> People seem more interested in listening to the two of us yapping about crap than uh, me having a guest, a new guest on every week. And um, I've asked some of you to, I've asked you to write in, and some of you have written in, which is really great. And keep writing in, and we'll see if we can get to your, if you just want to ask us a question or tell us when to get off our soapbox or give out to us or, you know, cancel us, try cancelling us. We'd be quite happy. Um, the person who uh, we did, we did get a, a call, and this, this is a bit dated because this dates back to the uh, murder of Sarah Everard, who was a marketing, ironically, executive coming home on her commute uh, from work in uh, London, South London, um, and she got attacked and killed by a police officer, which was just blew the heads off most people in the British Isles. Um, in the what? <laughs> in the <laughs> North Atlantic Celtic archipelago. <laughs> I stepped on a landmine. In Damn. Britain and Ireland. Uh, because that shouldn't happen, and it shouldn't happen with the police officers. But somebody wrote in and said, uh, first of all, they thanked me for describing Piers Morgan as an odious twerp, which I yeah. think is a good way of describing him. But he said, what about the uh, awful murder of Sarah Everard in the UK sparking all-female demonstrations against male violence? Is it right to use this awful but rare event as a generalised example of male violence? How might her parents and family feel? Is half the population of the planet really a risk to women? Should men be demonised because of one demon? Or is it such an important issue that lockdown rules should be broken by demonstrating in public? There were huge demonstrations about this. Uh, I, I think rightly so. Uh, and he said, you know, this, this person who wrote in doesn't want to be named because they said this is too controversial a subject. Uh, yeah. And I'm just distressed that 30 years after all men are rapists, generalised anti-male misogyny seems to be perfectly acceptable again, counterproductive to gender equality, which we may get to on another show. Uh, and I can't say that uh, publicly, which is heresy. So this is something that we're going to maybe focus on the next two shows, which is this idea that debate is being kind of flushed down the toilet. You have to pick a side. Mm. And this one is one where, you know... I think I love the fact that he used heresy at the end, because that's a word I've been using a lot in the past couple of weeks. Heresy is the thing that yeah. saying, asking any questions, opening any debates is heresy. Mm. That's a, That's another day's conversation as to why I think that is, but... Um, yeah, for the question, uh, I, I don't think it's cowardly that he didn't particularly want to be named. I don't blame him because we've been talking about a lot of other topics where you just don't fucking need the backlash. Let's talk about male misogyny, which again is one of those words that yeah. drives women nuts. Um, yeah, so I hear that, but I, I also hear in, we're going to call him John, because otherwise I'm going to accidentally use his name. Uh, I also hear in John's comments a, a question about male misogyny, but also a question about gender and when I say gender I mean how we interact with one another like man and woman woman, how Mm. we relate to each other so there's a few questions in there and I I think the Sarah Everard thing is kind of dated now but it's still I think the point being there was uproar about it and it was as happens it can be cyclical these things get huge they're in the media so it brings up conversations that everyone just fucking forgets about for two years and no one gives a shite and then suddenly everybody's up in arms again Mm. you know and that can happen but during that time there's a lot of strong opinions floating about. So uh, it wasn't an all-female demonstration, although it was a mainly... Uh, I would have demonstrated. It was a mainly I'm femme sure, demonstration. I, I know John well enough to know he would have probably too. Yeah, yeah. So I think, look, obviously what happened was awful and we acknowledge that there are massive statistics for the amount of women that are murdered by partners every day around the world. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's a lot more than you think when you look into it. And so we were, we were talking yesterday, how, how do we know if it's worse now than it was in the 70s? Like how women report more and, you know, how do you it's quantify? Well, you, you quantify how many women are left dead. So there's a massive problem there. But, and I, I really don't like the not all men, as in as soon as we talk about something that's a problem, that you get these dickheads that kind of go, well, not all men. Well, grand, we were talking about you then. Sit the fuck down. But we're not going to shut up because we actually, this is important. So I hate the idea that anytime we talk about this, that you have men that are getting defensive and go, well, I don't like that because it gets, my it's not, I don't, grand, good. Great. Congratulations. You want a medal. We're not talking about you then, but we do still need to talk about this. But I don't actually hear that from John's comment. So like, just to clarify, 
I, I, I know divers are not all men. I do think though, um, some of the tone of, of the conversation that we've been having is quite toxic. And again, you'll have people going, oh, you're going to tone police. It is toxic. So I said, like, I have two children. I have a girl and a boy. And I really care about violence against women. I care about rape culture. I care about these things because I have a daughter that's going to come into womanhood. I deeply care. But I also have a son. And I want to raise him to be a kind man. I want to be him to be a good man who understands consent. I want him to be a gentleman who has respect for women. But I also want to raise him to expect to be respected. I don't want to raise him with a horrible opinion of himself and with this deep sense of shame about his masculinity. So, yeah, yeah, we do need to talk to boys, particularly because of the pornification of society. I think that has a huge impact. We do need to have these discussions and we, and we do, you know, we do need to teach our sons better. But teaching our sons to be good men is not the same as um, implanting this sense of shame that to be a man means that you're a monster. And I think we are doing that to an extent. And I think that's counterproductive. There was a story I read last week about a school in Australia and they'd been having a talk about violence against women and all that kind of thing. And they asked all the boys to stand up and turn to the girls and to apologise for their gender. Like I think it was well-intended. It was one of these touchy-feely... It was, it was well-intended, but I mean... The boys came out and they kept talking to their parents. They were saying, sure, half the girls were bawling and crying. And the boys came out feeling really uncomfortable and talked to their parents. Their parents were mad. And the boys were made to, they, like, we, we feel like we're rapists or like we've done something. And I think that's really damaging to the boys. Yeah. Those talks are so important and boys need to actually understand and hear what it's like to be a girl. Mm. And, and, and that, that exercise was literally, that, that's, that's horrendous. Mm. Aside from the fact that it's unhelpful, because if you keep treating men like you're all rapists and you're all bad and you're all misogynists, yeah. eventually the good men just stop fucking trying. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not mm. saying that we need to scrape and bow in order for men to be good. Yes, I expect better from a lot of men, but I also would expect better from a lot of women. Mm. And, like, I don't want men to continue. I, there's this oppression Olympics thing in all of wokest day, the society of the woke, that's a problem. And it's like, women need to be able to talk to men and say, we need you to know that this is a problem. We need you to know it's to this extent. And I think men need to sometimes, some men need to shut the fuck up and listen and stop going, ah, it's not like that. Well, maybe you don't know because you're not a woman. You need to actually listen to women. This is what's happening. And when you listen to a room full of women, you realise, actually, a grown man made a very inappropriate comment to all of us at 10 and 11. And that that's not unusual. And men don't realise that. So I think it's useful to have those conversations. But I don't think it's a case of all men don't owe us an apology. And acting like they do is like we need to tell you what's going on for us and have you hear us and listen to us and ask you for your help. And here's what we need from you. We need you to have conversations. We need you to look out for us. We need you to not take personally that all men are not bad. But I think good men need to understand why women are scared. So if you're walking down the street and a woman crosses the street because you're a bit behind her, you need to go, I'm sorry that she that she feels that way. Not go, oh, for fuck's sake, there's more man-hating. So I think there's a balance of understanding that it's not, a, it's not a personal attack on you as men if we're scared and if we talk about being scared and if we're wary. And I think men need to be need to understand that and be decent about that. But it's also not okay to treat men like they're all... I, I think that's the best example I can give. If I cross the street and it's quite obvious I'm crossing the street because I'm kind of scared of somebody walking behind me, they need to have empathy and not be angry with me. But I also wouldn't dream of speaking to me, to him as if he's a rapist and yeah. assuming that. But I, And I think that's, that's for me the crux of it. We need to look at what are we doing in the relations between men and women? That We talk about toxic masculinity and it does exist. There are some awful things. But there's also some really good masculinity. And I, I think masculinity in itself is not a bad thing and I think it's great that boys and men are being told that they can cry and they can talk about their feelings and they've been told it for 20 years but it's now become a thing where they can I think that's really good because if you look at the suicide statistics you know I think it's so good and I also think that the more boys and men are taught to feel their feelings the less abusive men you'll have at a certain age when the only thing you're allowed to be is tough and angry that's a problem for society so I think there's some great things there but sometimes I can imagine if I was a man I'd probably feel as if Toxic masculinity is bad and you're allowed to be a man, but only if you're a certain type of man. And being a good man means basically stripping you of all testosterone. <laughs> it kind of feels like that, where I think some of the, I don't think being able to talk about your feelings is an inherent, inherently female thing. I have no time for gender. I think it's box. But I think we've been we, we can re- all recognize that we've been socialized in that way. And in order to in order to have healthier boys and men and like 
my son growing up and I want to, I want his friends to not take the piss when one of them talks to each other and says you're all right like I, I want to see that coming I want him to be healthy and well mm. but I also don't want everything thrown away I like some of the things that some of the traditional masculinity things that you think of are strong leadership for example mm-hmm. and if you look at the amount of men certainly in my community that coach kids teams that coach kids boxing and sometimes you look at that and you go oh it's a boxing club and it's men and he's like and he's barking at them but you go these are at risk young people who don't all have male role models at home and sometimes they don't want to sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya so there are and sometimes it takes a particularly manly masculine man so mentorship is a huge thing and I think constantly looking at what's wrong with men instead of looking at what we need from men and what what's to be encouraged and things like men's sheds were a great thing yeah. that was about like not expecting them to sit to come and join the ladies group and sit knitting your orgasms talking about your feelings but it was so important but yeah i think there is a toxicity to the way we speak about men and masculinity that's not to excuse everything and that's not to say that oh god the poor men and we shouldn't i think we really need to look at gender issues and and toxic masculinity but we also need to look at the toxic attitudes toward men masculinity and being a man so that was the female response to to to, to, to i did do gender studies as well so yeah. it's also <laughs> my 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 take on it is and i t- i pretty much agree with all that you said there the 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 first the first thing is when this girl's walking home she gets attacked by a male police officer we have a real problem in our society mm-hmm. if that's happening and so that's why we go out and protest and there are echoes here of the Black Lives Matter situation. I was thinking that, yeah. Um, because a knee-jerk response to that would, well, all lives matter, or blue lives matter. The problem, you know, and even people like Sam Harris, who has a, you know, I, like someone I respect intellectually, has a kind of a black, a blind spot on this as well. Because he goes, well, actually, more white people are shot by the cops. Yeah, maybe, but there's no videos coming out of white people being shot in the back. There's no videos of white people being kneeled on, but you know, and, mm. and, and, and put to sleep by a police officer. So there is this problem that needs to be highlighted and blown up, maybe out of all proportion. Yeah. Maybe that's the only way you fix it. Yeah. And so to say that, you know, not all men is a bit like saying, you know, all lives matter and mm. blue lives matter. We have a problem here with some men and we've always had a problem with some men yeah. all the way through history. For example, men today are more in touch with their feelings than they were when I was growing up in the 70s. They're more able to talk about it. They're, they understand and are educated better on things yeah. like sex and on things like chivalry and, and how to treat women. They're very conscious of the fact in colleges that they can't grab people by the pussy. They can't do these. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of guardrails around men right now that they're very clear that if they step over that line, they know. Like in the past, they can't go, oh, I didn't know or I mentally, you know, whatever. Mm. We know where we stand on this thing. And the majority of men, I believe, stand within those. And also, another thing that didn't happen in the past, call out men who do transgress and badly call them out. So I think that there is this uh, modern society where men are are more able to cry. They're more feminine. We can talk about that the next show. And they're less violent than they were back then. There's less football violence there's less violence you know there's less there's less violence on the street normally you go into dublin on a saturday and the place is just a fucking war zone i mean yes there's still fights but they're not as, as violent and so i think that there's a lot of things that have happened to maleness yeah. over the last 20 years that doesn't mean that there's still not a problem with women and that doesn't mean that the women still as they say go to when there's a man walking around they reach for their keys in case they're about to be attacked and they're scared and the world seems to have not got rid of the idea of, of the mugger or the rapist or the person who attacks people in the dark who's you know it's a very disgusting act you know and mm. men get attacked as well yeah so we have a problem with some men and we have i think another issue with men where they're becoming a lot better yeah most women my age and younger will be well maybe not that much younger will be aware of the uh nice guy phenomenon mm. and that has turned the nice guy is like i'm not like other guys i'm a nice guy and usually like a brick yeah so your your red flag is that um, any man who tells you he's a nice guy a different if, if i ask you if you're a nice guy you'd go i would hope you go yeah i think so but anybody who persists persists to tell me oh a few times on a few occasions on a first date that they're a nice guy i go okay stay away from the don't ever speak to them again <laughs> because we've we've just watched it we we tell each other everything we see we've watched it they're always the fucking creeps in the end yeah now why are you tr- why are you trying so hard to tell me 
you know, show yeah. me you're a nice guy, yeah, but exactly. like people that I'm are national just, treasure. Yeah, there's an there's an entitlement there, but there's also a thing of there are an awful lot of men who get into feminism, and oh, they're fucking dangerous. They're fucking dangerous. They're calling out toxic masculinity and those men, but they're like learning all about feminist pedagogy and they're sitting there and they're at every rally but they're like there's certain ones within the Irish feminist community that are fucking known for it mm. filthy rapist bastards like the shit that they pull off and they do it by co-opting feminism and wokeness and oh yeah men are so toxic except me obviously because I'm a male feminist and some of them are fucking dangerous yeah I mean but I, I think that would whereas that... some of the men that say the wrong thing and maybe aren't as uh, oh, Jesus maybe the yeah. odd thing they say might be slightly sexist but they didn't, there's no harm in it are much better men with much yeah. more respect for women that wouldn't dream of that you could have a conversation. Like sometimes you'll say something and I go, eh, I don't know about that. I think that's a bit, a bit sexist. It doesn't, but like there's this polarity that um, like, yes, there are some men that there's a problem with as in they're rapists and they're going to beat the shit out of women, right? There are some men that are like that. There's also a large group of men that aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but are overall good men. And I'm not saying we'll fucking suck it up, but I'm saying I can say to you, actually... I think that's a bit sexist. And you go, well, I don't think that is. And I say, well, here's why. Hmm. Doesn't mean, well, if you've said them something that's like, slightly sexist, therefore you're sexist, you're part of the patriarchy, therefore you're bad, therefore yeah. you're the, exactly the same as Donald Trump. And in fact, you're exactly the same as Jack the Ripper. And you're, you, you know, words are violence. Yeah. You are a rapist murderer. I think that uh, litany that you just went through exists a lot. And that's where people like John get pissed yes. off. I think that we have uh, a situation where... You know, if you go along that course, men will start dropping off. They'll go, piss off, shut up. You know, also, yeah. you know, I love making misogynistic jokes about women, okay? <laughs> and get over it, you know? I love yeah. using the C word and women pull me, oh, it's offensive to my body. It's a word, yeah. you know, but my heart is in the right place. And if I yeah. ever saw a woman in trouble, and I would hate to think that me walking behind a woman would cause her to cross over or feel scared. And sometimes you are like that. Sometimes yeah. you're walking behind a woman and you go, okay, I'll have to walk around her so in a big arc so she doesn't feel like I'm going to be... Yeah, like I've know, been with you and said, here, listen, cross over the road. Why? Because she's nervous. Yeah. And you yeah. go, okay. And you didn't take a person. You were like, oh, um, And there are... the way, One of the ways I was going to describe it was, a, was a f- football fans. You know, you have a bunch of people supporting Manchester United. Most of them are happen to be men. But you have... Dads bringing their little kids to see to, mm. to see matches. You've also got guys in that crowd who want to kick off yeah. the fight. Yeah. Okay, and they're going to pretend that they're Man United fans. They're going to wear all the gear. They probably are big Man United fans. Yeah. But before and after the game, and in the eighties during it, they wanted to thrash the fucking gaff. Yeah. They wanted to beat up rival supporters. Exactly. Okay. So not all football fans. And by the way, that's what they yeah. used to say. It's a mindless minority. And there is a mindless minority of men. There is also, and we need to we'll probably come to this in the next show, there's also a kind of a, a Piers Morgan kind of fucking uh, saber-rattling kind of Edgelord. not helpful... Edgelord. Uh, yeah, what, what was I call him? An odious twerk. Yeah. yeah. Who basically take John's point and blow it up so yeah. that it becomes this... Look, all women are telling us there's a patriarchy and there's, there's yeah. not. And there, like, I don't believe there's a patriarchy in the sense that I don't believe there's a cabal of men somewhere uh, rubbing their hands. Well, going, Let's nobody believes that. Up. Well, I know, but like, that's what it's, that there's a, that there's a, it's, it's a thing that we're gradually crushing. This idea that women don't get this, uh, internally, this idea that women don't get paid the same. This idea that, we, because right now women, are ahead of men in college. Yeah. They're ahead of yeah. men in so many. They're ahead of men in empathy. What's happening though is that there's a cert, there's like the maternity risks. So basically, whether you have kids or not, yeah. somewhere even though women are outperform gir- girls are outperforming boys in STEM subjects and in college, and they're much more educated. When you get to between thirty and thirty five, you're noticing a huge drop. Now yeah. it's obvious because a lot of people have kids. And a lot they, of them yeah, want to do that. Yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. But it's, it's so there there are still systems to look at. Yeah. And but like let's. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not sure a true emancipation for women will come in my lifetime because there'll always be there'll always be a fight there'll always be something that's like yeah. not not uh, working. But you know, I, here, here's what I would say to John: I I don't think any right thinking man should get their knickers in a knot about people and women particularly complaining that it is unsafe to walk the streets yeah. at night. And I don't think that John should be getting his knickers in a knot because. We're, we're insinuating that all men are 
bad. We're not saying that. And I don't think any right-thinking man thinks that's what's going on in the same way that Black Lives Matter is not saying that all lives don't matter. Yeah. So I, I think that we need to ignore the Piers Morgans and we need to try and stand up as men and we need to call out other men mm. who are be- behaving impropriety, <laughs> improperly um, and get on with it. It's not our yeah. fight to have another fight going, oh, you have to be nice to men too. We have a problem. We're, we're men. You know what? Grow a pair of balls and deal with it because it's not a threat to you. Yeah, and I, like what I would say is just like Piers Morgan does not represent every person who goes, hang on, I'm not sure I'm not sure this is really fair to be talking about men this way. Like, it's not the same as someone like Piers Morgan just being a dick. So yeah. just like he I doesn't... So just like Piers Morgan doesn't represent all the men like John who are having this conversation, what I would say is all of the screeching fucking how dare you breathe, you are my oppressor, bow down and apologise to me, men are bastards, and you need to do this, and you're part of a system, and I don't care if you're not the person who rapes somebody, but if you're part of it, if you're hanging around with someone, then you're part of it, and you're just as bad, and you need to do it, and you need to sit down and listen, and you all have internalised misogyny. You know, there are a vocal minority that are pulling that shit, and it's really fucking aggressive, in-your-face, nasty shit. Most of us are just saying, yeah, Obviously, there's a small minority of men that are fucking terrible and that are going to rape and hurt us. It's just that there's also quite a large group who might need to take a look at some of their behaviour and we'd really appreciate it if you could listen to our stories and maybe sometimes believe us when we're Mm. talking about this. And just because it seems bizarre to you, it's true though. It's all of us know that. And I know men are like, ah, couldn't possibly be. Yes, it is true that... We all have experiences as children of grown men making inappropriate comments to us, leering at us in the streets, calling us in the streets. So actually, it is a big problem. There are a small number of women who lie about rape, but most women who who, who are raped are raped. There's also a huge, not sorry, there's also a small cohort of uber feminists who are a pain in the fucking Mm. hole. And they're the women who I go, you know what, I laugh at them. Because they're yeah. oh, they're the ones who he's complaining about. But if any if it's any consolation, right? Those particular ones, I know the ones you mean. I can look at I can look at my Facebook and I can pick out which ones <laughs> it is. And if it's any consolation, they're absolute vicious fucking bitches mm. within feminist circles where the rest of the people don't get to see in its private groups. Yeah. They're fucking horrible. Yeah. They're nasty, vicious, disgusting bitches. Yeah. They're so horrible. It's not just you. So, They're just horrible. You know, we, 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 I, I also had this theory about the, you know, I've been giving out about last year about all the women in America who voted for Donald Trump. And you yeah. touched on this a few minutes ago. And Donald Trump, I mean, have a listen to this. I think they're concerned about retaliation from the president. Uh, they're, they're concerned about, uh, you know, being attacked within the party. And, and you know, it just bothers me that you have to swear fealty to uh, the dear leader or you get kicked out of the party. It just doesn't make any sense. And so I think what the reality is, is as a party, we have to have an internal look and a full accounting as to what led to January 6th. I mean, right now it's basically the, the Titanic. We're like, you know, in this in the middle of this slow sink, we have a band playing on the deck and telling everybody it's fine. And meanwhile, as I've said, you know, Donald Trump's running around trying to find women's clothing to get on the first lifeboat. And I think there's a few of us that are just saying, guys, this is not good, not just for the future of the party, but this is not good for the future of this country. Some mental images there I didn't want to comp- uh, contemplate, but uh, here to discuss all the political headlines. Uh, CNN, CNN. That was last night, and that was, I think his name is Kissinger, or Kiss- I don't know if it's Kissinger, but he was he's a Republican um, politician in government tearing down his own icon. But the Donald Trump fatted calf is still alive and is tearing apart the Republican Party. But when I was giving out about all the American women voting for a guy who, who, who's cheated on his wife, these are all, many of them, Christian women, who's uh, grabbed them by the pussy, who's rude to people, who's awful, clearly a misogynist. Mm. There is a woman who thinks we're getting too soft. We need a strong order. I mean, this is Bolsonaro. There are these guys are actually mm. voted into power by men and women, and they say we need a we need a tough guy. I don't know where Boris Johnson fits into this because he's hardly you wouldn't be kind of scared of him. But you know that there that we need an authoritarian to yeah. run us and guide us and a teach real us man. a real man. Now that is something I think John and me need to kind of get on. 
because that's very dangerous because that's without being too hysterical yeah. that ends up at Hitler yeah 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 well I mean like if you look at it, the fact is even though lots of people would vote for a woman when you look at it for years they've had out like every American president has been over a certain height has looked a particular way yeah. and has had a, a voice that's particular you know so there, there are certain characteristics so woke as we might be and even before the woke thing but as progressive as we might think we are it does and it's not just in America it's all around the world like there, there is this tendency that we and it's even like you see it with um, management we tend to defer to men the, uh, part of the reason men get uh, managerial positions or they get senior positions is not just overt sexism it's because they did better in the interview they seemed more capable yeah but that's because we're used to seeing men of a certain age and of a certain ethnic background looks like a leader to us and women do it as well so a lot of it's subconscious and so not everything is this big bad cabal in the background and but like there are there are certain things that we automatically think of and then some of it's going to be biological that there are certain things that create a reaction in our brain and we don't realize it but we don't mean ah oh, yeah he's a man so that's why we think he'd be better but we we do react to a deep voice tall and height masculine of a certain age it not just because we're used to seeing those people in power but i think and I, I, we've, had, we've had that argument but there's also literally just biologically I have a little game I play that basically if I speak in a more middle class accent, people listen to me and and receive me as more intelligent. And if I speak in a more working class accent, which I do for the crack anyway, sometimes mm. people automatically listen to me less and speak over me or defer elsewhere. And I don't think people intentionally do that. We all have these behind the scenes prejudices mm. going on. So it's not it's not a surprise that particularly masculine men feel like leaders. Yeah. I mean, the other thing with the butterfly effect is we've just lived through the transition from Trump to Biden and just witnessed what Biden has just rolled up his sleeves and got shit happening again in America. I mean, I was just thinking how easily it could have gone the other way Mm. and how the effect that might have had on the world. You know, for example, a very big one is America's back on climate at the moment with an idea, I think a very solid idea that you get capitalism focusing on making money out of doing green making green from green uh, should be an advertising um and and That's if he hadn't because... if he hadn't gone in and we had trump the world is starting to then say fuck it you know it's yeah. it's, it's it's almost like a, a a suicide pact which we're not far off we have some leaders that are in that area oh, look it's not the end of the world oh it might actually be <laughs> exactly and uh, yesterday we just had a Chinese rocket land somewhere uh, in the Indian Ocean luckily it didn't hit anybody but they didn't know where the fuck it was landing anyway um, what the fuck was that about was that uh, like I, I can't I still can't, can't quite grasp was that something went wrong oopsie but look don't worry it'll be alright they don't know or was it, was it actually always intended that yeah that's going to happen if it lands on someone fuck it they don't know because I was just saying it's the difference like it's like if, if one of our if a Dublin bus crashed it, well okay if something went wrong and the bus crashed, bus crashed and everyone's going to be okay please, by the looks of things great thank god it's quite different to he fucking crashed into a wall on purpose quite different yeah they don't know because the Chinese have their own space uh, agencies and they don't share everything as they should and so the NASA boys are going like is this going to be a regular occurrence every time you send something up it's going to go uh, yeah it's coming down to where we don't know where it's i mean it's interesting the the odds of being hit are so tiny even though there's seven billion of us you know so much of the planet is water for example yeah. and so you know uh, you uh, i was thinking about it if there was a guy in a rowing boat <laughs> a guy in a rowing boat out in the middle of a fucking lake in the middle of nowhere in Russia and he's just with his dog <laughs> and smacks him and he dies. Imagine but, if it landed <laughs> in your house and you're not in it. Can you claim that off insurance? Imagine you're, ringing you're up your insurance away. company and going, listen, <laughs> odd one, am I covered for... <laughs> they call it an act of God because as we all know, Xi Jinping well, is I was, God. I was wondering about the act of God thing is like if it's a hurricane or, you know, uh, but then I was like, yeah, but this is actually a man-made situation, as in, now, arguably, weather could be that you're getting down. But, like, no, this is actually something somebody did. Yeah. So. No, I was joking, because it was Xi Jinping's God. I know. I'll talk about that. Yeah. Anyway, that's probably a podcast, is it? Uh, I want. I had one more thing, um, and I'm going to probably put this out at the end of the next couple of podcasts, because it was something that I was very taken with. It is uh, from my old pal, Sam Harris's uh, Making Sense podcast. And 
A few weeks ago, he interviewed a guy called David White, who is a poet and a philosopher and a zoologist, believe it or not. I didn't know that. College. And he's written a book called Constellations, The Solace, Nourishment and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words. And we have, through Sam Harris, uh, for David White reading a little essay he's written about each yeah. of these words. And the first word I just thought it'd be nice to do today, given that we spoke about Facebook and all my friends on Facebook and the importance of how friendship, even if it's not something that's maybe given every day, or even if it's something that was once and is now no longer, but still that there are tenuous ties to it. Um, just how important it is to have friends and yeah. how important it is to cultivate and protect your friendships and look after them. And so I just thought, unless you had anything else you wanted to say? No, but just prepare yourselves because his voice is fantastic. Yeah, he's also got a really beautiful voice. <laughs> Only and, his voice could carry this. And he just delivers this beautiful, and if you get bored of it and it's going on for too long, this is the end of the show. But if you're not, I'd really suggest you listen to this. And um, we will see you next month on A Pint with Shawnee B. God bless all the best. Mind yourselves. This is David White on Friendship. Friendship. Friendship is a mirror to presence and a testament to forgiveness. Friendship not only helps us to see ourselves through another's eyes, but can be sustained over the years only with someone who has repeatedly forgiven us for our trespasses, as we must find it in ourselves to forgive them in turn. A friend knows our difficulties and shadows and remains in sight. A companion to our vulnerabilities more than our triumphs when we are under the strange illusion that we do not need them. A friend knows our difficulties and shadows and remains in sight. A companion to our vulnerabilities more than our triumphs, and we are under the strange illusion that we do not need them. An undercurrent of real friendship is a blessing exactly because its elemental form is rediscovered again and again through understanding and mercy. All friendships of any length are based on a continued mutual forgiveness. Without tolerance and mercy, all friendships die. Without tolerance and mercy, all friendships die. In the course of the years, a close friendship will always reveal the shadow in the other as much as ourselves. To remain friends, we must know the other and their difficulties and even their sins and encourage the best in them not through critique, but through addressing the better part of them, the leading creative edge of their incarnation, thus subtly discouraging what makes them smaller, less generous, less of themselves. Friendship is the great hidden transmuter of all relationships. It can transform a troubled marriage, make honourable a professional rivalry, make sense of heartbreak and unrequited love, and become the newly discovered ground for a mature parent-child relationship. The dynamic of friendship is almost always underestimated as a constant force in human life. A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble of overwork, of too much emphasis on a professional identity, of forgetting who will be there when our armoured personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in even the most ordinary existence. Friendship transcends disappearance. An enduring friendship goes on after death. The exchange only transmuted by absence, 
the relationship advancing and maturing in a silent, internal, conversational way, even after one half of the bond has passed on. But no matter, no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the self nor of the other. The ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another. To have walked with them and to have believed in them and sometimes best to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. No matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the self nor of the other. The ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness, a privilege of having been seen by someone, and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone.